From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The Defense Department Inspector General will review the selection of Huntsville, Alabama to become the headquarters of Space Command. The IG office said Friday it'll examine whether the Air Force and Pentagon followed policy and evaluated competing locations correctly. The final down-select list included six locations. A Marine Corps veteran will be the new Chief Veterans Experience Officer at the Department of Veterans Affairs. John Borsler joins the agency from the nonprofit Combined Arms. A VA release says Borsler is a co-founder of the Lone Star Veterans Association. Almost a quarter of active duty sailors have at least one round of coronavirus vaccines. Assistant Deputy Chief of Naval Operations Rear Admiral Carl Thomas says about 45,000 sailors have had both shots and 35,000 more have had the first one. USNI News reports Thomas said the Navy's goal is to have 75 to 80 percent of each ship's crew vaccinated. The Pentagon says it could opt for a fresh start on the Joint Enterprise Defense Infrastructure contract. For the Defense Department to get the cloud services it wants, the agency may take a new procurement approach. Joe Jordan is CEO at Octoparo, former administrator of federal procurement policy. It's good to see you, Joe. Thanks for coming on. Is there something different the department could do or should do this time around that it doesn't get bogged down in another two-year uh, protest cycle? Yeah, and thanks for having me, Francis. I mean, look, I want to be deferential to the civil service and contracting team that spent thousands of hours on this. I understand, like, I wasn't in the room. There are probably a lot of good reasons why they did different things they did. But from the beginning, I've, you know, been curious why they chose to go with a single award contract structure here. I mean, I understand that there's the you know, at least perceived efficiencies and effectiveness improvements by standardizing these cloud environments um, with one vendor. But you're talking about a 10-year, $10 billion contract. Like, think back to 2011. How far has cloud computing come since then? And we're saying, oh, no, no, we want the same vendor locked in for the next decade. That never made any sense to me. And I think that's from a practical and technical point of view the ability to award this contract without every vendor fighting to the death, I think, you know, it also would be beneficial to maybe look at a multiple award contract and then issue the task orders as appropriate. Are there mechanisms in place for the department to get what they want through vehicles that already exist? I understand that a, a, an application this specialized might not be something you just go buy off a, a GWAC or something like that, Joe. But is there something to do to streamline this so that it doesn't become a two-year cycle to get the requirements out and then a two-year cycle for protests and all of that. Absolutely. And, and of course, you're right that this is, you know, a somewhat specialized environment because it's DOD. But come on, every business I've ever worked at spends some time evaluating, you know, the different options between AWS and Microsoft and, you know, Oracle and IBM Red Hat. And then make you know goes in and, and executes it doesn't take this long and you know there are already dozens and dozens of dod clouds and cloud projects out there with a whole host of different vendors now these are supposed to be what's called fit for purpose kind of specialized cloud environments but you know as we've seen with the air force recently 
there's no reason they can't be expanded to kind of address this critical unmet need that DOD has because they haven't been able to award this larger general purpose cloud contract. And that's kind of the theme of the talk that I hear in the community over the last couple of weeks, especially since this, this uh, advice memo came out from the department is, why don't they just glom onto something that already exists in some form? Maybe it has to be modified or something like that. But there's, as you said, there's already a number of vehicles out there, Joe. Yeah, absolutely, Francis. You know, but I think like with everything involving Jedi, the PR and kind of overall brand issues, you know, can get in the way of what's best and fastest to do technically and, and for the warfighter. I mean, you ask what could they do differently? Well, I don't know. I would have the president commander in chief not tweet that he's going to interfere in the contracting process because he doesn't like the newspaper owning CEO of one of the bidders. That's another thing. So yeah, I mean, from a technical and typical contract process, there are plenty of options they have, but they're still going to have this kind of elephant in the room around what's the resolution for Jedi. And I think that memo to Congress from DOD kind of is the first step of them saying, we're probably going to scrap this thing, right? They're saying, no matter what the judge decides in round one, it may just be too complex and cumbersome to go forward, so we may just end this. And that's what I wanted to get your handicapping on next. By the way, I think your observation is correct. It's unlikely that we'll see tweets to that effect uh, moving forward. But what do you think the likelihood is from a procurement perspective that that memo indicates, kind of telegraphs what the department is likely to do? Uh, I would say 75 plus percent that they kind of either scrap or modify to such an extent that it's a distinction without a difference saying they're scrapping or revising the Jedi contract and just go with other solutions that are easier and, and you know not keep on this current path. What is a reasonable timeline do you think for any of these options that we've discussed so far to happen Joe? Well, I mean, again, I think because of optics, if not just efficacy, DOD is going to wait to see what this first ruling from the Court of Federal Claims says, and that could be weeks or potentially months away. Um, but, but in contracting speak, that's relatively soon. And then, uh, you know, I could see based on that DOD pretty quickly using it as um, appropriate cover for, hey, we're moving to a different solution. Maybe they say first we're going to test in the interim some of these existing cloud environments we already have for expansion or repurposing, um, and that just turns into the permanent solution. Um, but who knows, again, why do we need a decade-long contract for this? Technology changes so fast. You know, let's make sure we have the flexibility to use whatever the best solution is in three, five, and nine years. You mentioned the, most, uh, the four most likely players if this were to start over again, Joe. What would you tell one of those companies if they brought you in to say, how do we handle this moving forward? Yeah, I think, you know, tensions and, and you know, everybody's kind of back is up and, and the emotions are very strong on this. You can see that in some of the, you know, rare language used by both Amazon and Microsoft in press releases around the recent court filings. And that's understandable, right? Like this is a single award, $10 billion contract People are going to fight to the end on that. I get it. But my advice would be, if it is in fact, uh, hey, we're going in a different direction, DOD is trying something else, then lower the temperature, understand how hard it must be to be in these program and CIO offices within the Pentagon having worked on this for half a decade only to see it all tossed out. And 
you know, really volunteer as many non-self-serving solutions as possible, options as possible. And, and again, I think, you know, the more flexible both sides are, the more likely it's going to lead to success. And, and one other thing is, you know, the vast majority of other cloud contracts within DOD and beyond are done through integrators in a cloud provider agnostic way. And I know that there's a really good um, rationale for, hey, let's go directly to the cloud vendor. Um, but I wouldn't throw out that as a potential approach as well um, to kind of get this awarded effectively and quickly. Joe Jordan, thanks very much as always. Great to see you. Thanks for having me, Francis. Up next, the Biden administration's approach to China. Straight ahead on Government Matters, separating the myths from the facts about China's strategy. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Chinese companies buying American technology have sparked a campaign in the Defense Department against adversarial capital. But policymakers may have the motivation behind the buying spree wrong. Elsa Kanya is an adjunct senior fellow at Center for a New American Security, writing about military uh, civil fusion in China in Defense One. Elsa, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. What prompted you to want to address these myths as you see them in the way that people think about China? Uh, good morning. Uh, thank you. And uh, glad to be here. So uh, this commentary is based off of ongoing analysis I've been pursuing, including in a recent report with the Center for New American Security, looking at some of these myths and realities around military civil fusion uh, in collaboration with my colleague, Lorand Alaskai. And our initial impetus for writing this report was concern that, uh, con concern and also some surprise that a concept that was rather obscure for those of us who were analysts of the Chinese military and defense industry had suddenly become a talking point and even hashtag for American policymakers over the past four years, including statements from former Vice President Pence and former Secretary of State Pompeo, some of which seem to mischaracterize or overestimate the extent to which military civil fusion as a strategy was succeeding or had achieved in practice the, uh, the fusion that the strategy aspires to create. and. I think uh, certainly we've seen a drastic transition in recent years in U.S. policy towards China and certainly course corrections that have been overdue and necessary, yet also at times with that uh, shifts in discourse that can be counterproductive if uh, and re result in poor, uh, poor policy outcomes as well. And sometimes uh, military civil fusion becoming a uh, rationale for all kinds of uh, responses that are sometimes unrelated to the core of the strategy itself. Even uh, even the ban on TikTok was uh, initially justified because of the uh, company's supposed contributions to military civil fusion, but that was later rejected by a judge as a pretty flimsy rationale given the limited evidence that TikTok had anything to do with the Chinese military. So I think certainly there are a lot of uh, really uh, a lot of questions and challenges at stake when we think about how to reorient uh, U.S.-China relations in the realm of emerging technologies and having a precise understanding of how PRC policies work and uh, the degree to which there is uh, success or, uh, or in some cases, uh, efforts falling short of the 
of the hype and propaganda is, is, is important to recognize as American policymakers are grappling with, uh, with questions on directions for our responses going forward. Uh, you write about four myths, you and your colleagues, and uh, I want to go to the fourth one. Apologies for taking them out of order. Uh, you write, MCF doesn't actively involve nearly every Chinese enterprise at this stage. That comes, I think, from a perception that in order to operate in any kind of large way in the Chinese economy, you have to at least have the blessing, uh, the endorsement of the CCP and the Chinese government. Is that wrong? Do people uh, who hold that perception hold it incorrectly? So I think certainly the political economy in China is unique given the intense and increasing influence of the party state and, and the uh, uh, ways in which uh, the party interacts with the tech sector that are often opaque and uh, do raise questions about risks and concerns of due diligence. But I think when it comes to military civil fusion in particular, sometimes the idea of fusion implies or is characterized as if uh, any high-tech enterprise in China is likely to be working with or transferring its technologies directly to the Chinese military. And while uh, sure some Chinese military officers and uh, scientists would love for that to be the case, and in, in, in actuality, a military civil fusion as a strategy was introduced uh, as a response to the incompleteness of that integration or the fact that uh, uh, within China, state-owned enterprises had often been relatively uh, relatively ineffective or, or lagging in terms of innovation. And uh, the Chinese military had been procuring from more traditional stakeholders in the defense industry and MCF uh, with its launch, especially since 2015, has been intended to push the Chinese military to engage more in working with new commercial enterprises that are more at the cutting edge of emerging technologies. And certainly the participation by a range of stakeholders across Chinese universities, as well as startups and leading companies has increased uh, somewhat. I think cer certainly it is uh, an exaggeration to say that any any technology in China is automatically available to the military. Some of the same, some of the same uh, questions of bureaucracy and uh, challenges of procurement that uh, the U.S. military has grappled with are can also uh, can also arise and provoke some challenges as the PLA is seeking to adapt to uh, to, to this um, uh, evolving technological uh, conditions against the backdrop of what is regarded as a both an industrial revolution as well as a revolution in military affairs. Elsa, there's a lot more I'd like to cover, and unfortunately, we're out of time. I look forward to having you come back to continue the conversation. Thank you. Thank you. You can find a link to Elsa's piece at govmatters.tv resources. Up next, searching for the bright spots in the pandemics. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the good news about the government's coronavirus response. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website, govmatters.tv. Be right back.
Welcome back. The federal government's made a lot of adjustments since the start of the coronavirus about a year ago. The Partnership for Public Service lists 65 of the bright spots in the government's response to a potentially dark time. Max Steyer's president and CEO of the Partnership for Public Service. Max, welcome. It's good to see you. And you or your team member who wrote this, I think, stated this very eloquently. A phoenix emerged from the COVID-19 ashes, a government that is in many ways stronger, smarter, and nimbler. How did you come to that observation, and how did you decide it was appropriate to highlight these bright spots, Max? So first of all, you're 100% right. It's team. It's, it's, it's certainly not me, and I have got great colleagues. And look, I think um, we're in an extraordinary moment, obviously a moment of great crisis for our country, which is uh, demonstrating the vitality and the importance of government. And as you just stated, it really is a point in which we can rethink the way our government works. Our, our government typically responds unbelievably well in a crisis. It has done so again here, and there's a ton of learning to be done. Uh, we have a government that is largely operating uh, remotely, uh, virtually, and there's just phenomenal benefit going forward if we're able to harvest the innovation that's taken place. So our attempt in this report, as you uh, just under, underlined, is, is to highlight some of those innovations. Uh, we believe there's a ton more work to be done uh, to find out what good is going on and what might be replicated, not just where it's happening, but also uh, across the all of government. Yeah, the replication piece is what I think is most important, Max. And, and this, the, the other huge important piece that came out of this um, was the collaboration across uh, agencies. Um, numbers 55 to 61, we don't have time to talk about them all, but those were the ones that I think impressed me the most because in the years that I've been covering the government, that's always the hardest nut to crack is agency to agency operations because these organizations speak such different languages. Were there themes that you saw in the agency to agency collaboration and the reasons that it worked? Well, I think that part of this is all about uh, the focus on outcome. There's such an obvious need and and of, of government assistance uh, where um, some of the process limitations get put to the wayside. People rethink uh, how they do things because they have to, and they find often that they can do things a ton better. Um, we don't have a lot of bright spot analysis in our government. There's a lot of infrastructure to find problem, not a lot of infrastructure to find the good things. And in my view, will solve more problems by finding good things than any other strategy. As you note, incredible collaboration between agencies and also between sectors. There's a wonderful story about uh, the collaboration uh, between the Office of Science and Technology Policy and IBM bringing together supercomputers so that um, we can bring real computing power to test different potential solutions for various pandemic issues. I mean, there's just all kinds of important creative things that are occurring and again, this should be our future state. It's our it's, it, the 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 opportunity for improving government is before us right now. It's happening, and we need to make sure this is something that doesn't get lost. We don't return to status quo ante, but rather we move forward, uh, adopting the the new uh, operating model that we're seeing play out in response to the pandemic. So to your point, Max, about the future state, uh, an opinion column in the Wall Street Journal this weekend that uh, one doctor at least believes we could reach herd immunity between 
uh, vaccinations and antibodies by as soon as April. Let's say it's a couple months longer than that, but that means June, July, August, we're starting to think about that future state being here. And you write in this report, road ahead must include increased innovation, technology improvements, and dramatic changes in operations. What has to happen to make these good things stick and propagate, do you think? Uh, so phenomenal question. And I think it starts with, as always, the leaders um, seeing that this is a priority. So uh, making sure that the, both the individual agency leadership, uh, the central White House leadership, the leaders in Congress all take advantage of the changes that have already taken place and build government in order to be able to enable those things to happen going forward. So we need to, again, not return back to buildings. We now have a government that has demonstrated that it's the people, not the buildings. Uh, we should be, you know, we've had lots of conversation over the years around telework. We're in a whole different universe. Now it's not, you know, just a few more people teleworking. In my view, uh, for many instances, telework ought to be the norm uh, rather than the exception. Uh, and that would, you know, fundamentally change the operating, again, of government. It will save the, you know, the physical costs. It will enable people uh, to work more productively it will reduce congestion in the D.C. area. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff that comes out of this. Um, and it's not just telework. You know, one of my favorite examples is the VA, where they saw, and I'm going to get the numbers probably a little wrong, but something like a 1,700% increase in telemedicine uh, in the first few months. Um, you know, the VA has had, you know, really challenging, big challenges to, to get medical resources to rural uh, and remote areas. And, and what we're finding is that actually telemedicine can work at scale and help people in very, very big ways. So uh, the, the challenge here now is leadership needs to say, this is not what we did because of the pandemic. Leadership needs to say, this is what we learned from the pandemic and apply this as a going forward, forward model of, of, of operation. Max, we have 30 seconds left. What's the biggest thing that you saw in this work that you thought was impressive? <laughs> There are just too many examples. The most important to me, though, uh, is the fact that government not only uh, got stuff done remotely, it actually often did it better uh, than ever before. And that better is pretty powerful. Max Dyer, thanks very much, and congratulations to your team on this work. Thank you so much. You can find a link to that list at govmatters.tv slash resources. And if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, too. You get a preview of every program when you sign up for our daily program guide. You just text GovMatters to the number 58671. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 1030 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.